0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Noia Imolin, this and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's Thursday and I'm your host Aggie Thibault at the Way Thanks for tuning in. What well, today on the show, a Guam resident's worried about environmental impacts of bullets fired at a new US military firing range.
2: million rounds of ammunition will be fired annually. The the threat of lead contamination is really critical.
1: Air Vanuatu woes continue with passengers being told to pay for their own accommodation. But for how long?
3: That's what they say. Currently, we're not getting any good news at all from these these agents. Um, And the travelling agents are not getting any good information at all from Air Vanuatu. So we're really not sure...
1: And U.S. President Joe Biden shares his family connection to Papua New Guinea at the U.S. Pacific Leaders Forum Summit.
4: My uncle was in the Army Air Corps and he flew many missions in that A-20 across the Pacific. In 1944, during one of those missions, his plane crashed off the coast of Papua New Guinea. My uncle's remains were never recovered. More on all those
1: stories shortly, but if you want to share any across your social media platforms, simply type into your search engine, ABC Pacific Beat. Again, I'm Aggie Debo and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, the United States military has begun trialling a new live fire training range on the Pacific island of Guam. It marks a significant step in the military build-up that will eventually see thousands of additional U.S. troops stationed on the island. But members of the community are worried about the potential environmental impact of the bullets fired at the range. Marion Farr spoke with Siobhan McManus, who helped organise a community protest against the firing range this week.
2: The U.S. military in Guam has constructed a live fire training range complex on the northern Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. And this complex sits directly on top of Guam's sole source aquifer. And on Monday, the day of the protests, is when they began the first day of testing. And at that training range complex... 6.7 million rounds of ammunition will be fired annually. The the threat of lead contamination is really critical.
5: So tell me a little bit more about how you fear the water source may be contaminated with lead. Um, What are your main concerns about the way that this uh, firing range will be used? Our biggest concern
2: is that based on a study released by the Environmental Protection Agency in 2012, they looked at over 30 U.S. military installations around the U.S., and all of them had really high levels of lead and other contaminants in the soil. And because soil contamination is almost guaranteed at firing ranges— this is not good for guam because the soil of that firing range sits directly on top of what is a very, very porous limestone bedrock area and all of the water in guam's aquifer gets there via rainfall that travels through the porous rock is filtrated through that and then ends up in the the groundwater like basin and so the water in guam's aquifer comes via surface water and surface water has to travel through soil in order to get to that basin. And so for me, I'm concerned because you can't reverse osmosis, an aquifer that exists beneath the island. There has been so many cases of lead contamination that has led to serious health issues for children, for developmental issues. And also just like in adults with like a slew of health issues, kidney, liver, you know, cancer, et cetera. And lead is one of the most like studied contaminants in terms of like the public knowing that this is one of the most basic uh, things that we should be practicing extensive like safety and caution around. And so for me, my worry is that This water source supplies over 85% of our population with its fresh drinking water and also just like the water that we use to shower and cook with and, you know, et cetera. And being an island, we don't have an adequate alternate water source. And how has the United States government responded to the concerns that you've raised? The U.S. military, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense is required to publish environmental impact statements before they proceed with activities that could harm the environment. And so this has been honestly like a very long process of dialogue between the community, our local government, and the federal government or the U.S. military. Their response has been extremely dismissive of public concerns. A lot of just like public hearings that are mostly what we feel as a community is lip service of like, okay, we're required to hold this many public comment sessions. We're required to, you know, this many roundtables and public hearings. But at the end of the day, I mean, between Protect Wild Waters petition and Protect LaTexan and other community petitions, we garnered over thirty thousand signatures of community support, both local and like regional against this firing range. And like that has gone largely just like unresponded to. And all of the communication we get back from the Department of Defense is that like they are aware of the concerns and they're committed to being good stewards of the environment um, in the, you know, interests of national security. It's like, you know, the same kind of prepackaged response that you get um, from military officials and from the Department of Defense.
5: And what, what mm-hmm. are you calling on the government to do? What what um, would you like to see happen in response to your concerns?
2: I honestly would just like to see our governor and those in the legislature make as public as a stance as they can. I just think about our governor her platform i mean if she were to get on the radio or on tv you know the next day and say we may not have the power to seize our lands back or or tell the military to pause operations but as the highest like level of like you know political leader on this island i believe that um their activities are posing a public health crisis that honestly called like it would qualify as a national emergency we were able to get a National emergency status uh, declared after Typhoon Malwar cut off our power and our water. And to me, this is a crisis that's on that scale. Um, and so for me, I would just like to see our leaders actually not just spread awareness of the issue, but actually advocate for our community and, and, and kind of just like <laughs> fully supporting like the advocacy around this issue.
1: And that's Siobhan McManus from Save Guam Water speaking with Marion Farr. And the ABC has contacted the US military for comment. The fallout from Air Vanuatu's flight cancellations continues, with one traveller saying they've had to arrange their own accommodation in Fiji, with no idea how long they'll be there. Hundreds of people are already stranded in Vanuatu after the country's sole international aircraft was grounded in Brisbane due to mechanical issues. Anne Pakoa was on her way back home to Port Vila this week. But as she told Mackenzie Smith, a layover in Nandi on Tuesday has turned into an indefinite stay.
3: So I got stranded in, in Singapore for two days. And then finally, I was able to get on this flight, the, yesterday's flight from Singapore to Nandi, only finding out that my, my connecting flight from Nandi to Port Vila at 11 o'clock, um, p, 11 o'clock p.m. yesterday was, was cancelled. And what I was told by um, the person responsible at Evan Vanuatu desk in 90, uh, he was also stressing out about how he was calling the to staff and no one were responding. Um, they wouldn't respond to his calls, even though he was uh, calling several times that none of them would pick up the phone. And then uh, later on that evening, he only got like one email from to saying that the flight had been canceled um and so there was no conversation about accommodation for uh passengers that were stuck in Nandi. we have like many passengers uh that had um come through from our workers from new zealand and they were also stranded as well um so i didn't know how they went but i remember that we the last thing we did was we went to this officer and we were asking about accommodation and one of the staff had um, had this communication from one of his friends who works there at Evanwatu, and um, the staff at Ibanuatu was saying, don't worry, we're we'll organizing accommodation, and just wait, um, we'll come back to you, and we'll tell you what to tell you guys will be checking into, and all that. So we all waited um, until about over an hour later, we got this guy, the same guy that looks up at the Evanuatu desk here in Nandi, came back to us and and said that, oh, um, you know, Evanuatu had come back to us to say that you need to find your own accommodation. Um, So, when you check into a hotel, pay for your own accommodation and then um, bring your receipts back to Vanuatu so you can get reimbursement. But, like, already, already, they've already... Done a lot of emotional damage. Like you know, we're all frustrated. We're all you don't know. Like everyone doesn't know how much money people have. Like you know, and even the banks are not helping either. You know, like you get your cards not working. Yeah, like it's it's crazy. It's crazy what's going on everywhere.
1: And so, did you have to stay in a hotel last night?
3: No, I'm 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 very lucky because I have friends here in Fiji. And so I have a family. I have family friends who live across the airport. We're not far from Nadi, but uh, that, that thats me. Like I'm, I'm lucky, but there's many others. who are not as lucky, so it's not nice. What Anawatu is happening to us?
1: And do you have any idea how long you're going to be stuck in Fiji?
3: No, according to the organizers, uh, my organizers. Uh, they are not sure. They just said, we'll keep you in a hotel because we're really not sure um, how long you are. We're trying to look at the flights. All the flights are booked and the of flights. Currently, that's what they said. Currently, we're not getting any good news at all from um, these, these agents, these traveling agents. And, and the traveling agents are not getting any good information at all from Vanuatu So we're really not sure.
1: So right now, like, I'm not really sure how long I'll be here. And that is Nevan and Bakua speaking there to Mackenzie Smith. And Pacific Beat has sought comments from Air Vanuatu. Pacific Beat. A Kanaki independence candidate in New Caledonia has won a seat in the French Senate. This is the first time the FLNKS party has had such a position. Robert Shawi, the mayor of Lifou, was elected to the position on September 24th, which is the 170th anniversary of France's annexation of its Pacific dependency. He's one of just two representatives New Caledonia has in the Senate. And for more of this, I'm joined by Denise Fisher, former senior Australian diplomat, who served as Australian Consul General in Mayor. With that I say good morning. Hi Agnes, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much Denise for joining us this morning. Wow, how significant is this for the independence camp?
5: Well, it's highly significant and not just for the independence camp, because this, as you've said, is the first time an independence leader has ever been in the French uh, National Senate. Uh, and it occurred at quite a A pointy time in New Caledonia uh, and is not an accident uh, even though it is a big big surprise Uh, it was accompanied by the election uh, in the second senatorial position of a surprise loyalist the loyalist who I think everybody thought would win did not win Uh, so what does this say about about politics in New Caledonia at the moment well uh, the reason it occurred of course was because the pro-France camp is extremely divided, they're the ones that have dominated the senatorial uh, positions for the last 40 years. Uh, there are two senators for New Caledonia. They've always won both of them. Um, but this time they were extremely divided uh, and they proposed multiple candidates and did not rally around the preferred candidate, Sonia Bacchus, who is a major uh, loyalist leader, mm. and Macron and Macron favourite, Monsieur Darmanin. His interior minister came out days before the election and uh, Publicly supported Masonia Bacchus. Um, But secondly, it occurred because the FLNKS rallied, they they were very united and very disciplined. Uh, I think very aware of the fact that it was the 24th of September, this historic day, uh, and uh, they united around one candidate, Robert Jowy. And uh, as in the past, uh, this proved to be a very successful tactic when uh, the independence group unites and you can say well why did they unite? Well it's because it's fundamental, it's existential, it's about their core objective of independence for New Caledonia, emancipation, they they refer to the word emancipation sovereignty for New Caledonia at a very critical time. Uh, as I've said um, Sonia Bacchus was a Prominent uh, favourite of Mr Macron, he appointed her as the first ever New Caledonian minister in the national cabinet uh, two years ago. Uh, came out and supported her, but she has been rejected not only by the independent supporters, but by some clearly by some members of the pro France groups. Uh, the voting patterns is a com- very complex. Electoral college that uh, elects these two positions, but it's clear uh, both that the loyalist who won, Georges Naturel, obviously got some votes from the non-loyalist camp, as just as it is very clear that Mr Jawi got votes from the non-independence Camp. Mm. So a very revealing, um, very revealing victory for the independence group. It is being portrayed by them as the response to Mr Macron's pretro- proposals for the future of New Caledonia. As you know, there were the three referendums on independence that which had been awaited for 30 years, yes. uh, two, two years ago, uh, which showed, um, uh, which were very inconclusive. They were supposed to be very conclusive and decisive about New Caledonia's future but despite three formal votes in favor of staying with France they were inconclusive because the third one was boycotted by the kanak indigenous leaders and most if not all of their supporters are uh, delivering uh, a very in, a result very much at odds with the first two votes where they had increased massively their support to bordering on the 50%. So this um Mr Macron has been, trying, has been saying well we've won three times now it's it's time to now talk about New Caledonia in France and the future for New Caledonia. He made a rousing speech in July in Noumea when he visited. Uh, which was loudly praised by all the loyalist parties, but to which the uh, independence parties responded with a great deal of silence. Since then, Mr. Macron has had a meeting in Paris giving a proposal. Um, I must say, I've seen that proposal and, um, uh, independence leaders are saying that, you know, nine times they've met with the French in the last 12 months and they do not see themselves in this proposal, uh, in any, in, in any way, shape or form. For the region, you know, it's interesting too because even the proposal even walks back some of the, uh, things that the Namir Accord gave New Caledonia, particularly in regional affairs, uh, which have been, uh, The preserve of New Caledonia to conduct regional affairs under the Namir Accord. Mr Macron's proposal is that whenever they're dealing, for example, with forums like the Pacific Island Forum, they must take account of French national policy. So, you know, big problems for the independence uh, leaders who've rejected that, but have some of them, most of them have said they will still talk. Um, So where does it leave New Caledonia? Well, you know, For uh, the independence leaders, they're obviously holding firm. This is going to renew uh, their desire to to push for another self-determination vote uh, and uh, to hold their their position. Uh, The pro-France groups, I think, will be very concerned. There's a lot of fear, I think, at the growing support for the independence movement and the, the role of the independence parties. They're going to dig in their heels, I think. They already have. They're just claiming three victories for staying with France. Um, and we've seen that in the fact that a lot of people are leaving New Caledonia in 2000. We just had census. The statistics department indicate that 1,300 people left this small islands uh, in, in 2022. For France, of course, the stakes are extremely high to retain New Caledonia within France. For Mr Macron particularly, who has... Based his whole Indo Pacific vision on sovereignty in the Pacific, uh, particularly in New Caledonia. And of course, this is a challenge at the moment. So he's not going to give in. I think he's going to be digging in as well to make sure uh, he can secure um, uh, a, a new statute for New Caledonia by, he's talking about by early next year, which seems very difficult to attain. Um, And I don't see him stepping back from that. So so quiet. the impasse continues, shall we say.
1: (laughs) But so now that he has won that seat, I mean, how much of a say then do these representatives have in the Senate?
5: Um, Well, there are 300, more than 300 uh, national seats in the Senate, uh, and only two of them are designated for New Caledonia amongst a number, a small number for the overseas territories, the overseas French territories. Uh, So for New Caledonia, it's extremely significant to have two seats within the 300 in the Senate. The Senate discusses regularly things like uh, regional affairs overseas, uh, um, just apart from the domestic positions of the territories, you know, the French the French national territories. Uh, and now there will be a member of the an independence leader from New Caledonia able to participate directly in those discussions in Paris. So it's highly significant.
1: Thank you for that, Denise. Now I, I know this comes amid debate, you know, over what to replace the new mayor accord with. Like so what kind of role can Robert Shawi and the FLNKS play in that process? Uh,
5: Well, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. I know that this,
1: uh, how he has won at the seat, it does come amid Uh. debate over what to replace the new mayor accord with.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what kind of role would he be playing alongside the FLNKS in that process? Uh,
5: Sorry. Yes, I see. Well, the FLNKS um, leadership is um, very multiple. There are many, many leaders within the FLNKS coalition, and Mr. Jawi is one of those. Clearly, he will have uh, uh, an important say. But I think, as we know, in the Pacific, the the, uh, FLNKS operates in the Pacific way, which is consensus amongst leaders. So it's not just a a one-man band. It it is a consensus approach. So he will certainly be uh, extremely influential, not just in the discussions within FLNKS about future policy, but also in uh, delivering those decisions and those positions directly to Paris. In a, in a, when I say that, I mean directly to the French Parliament uh, for the first time, which is which is different to going to Paris and discussing it with the government, as delegations have done in the past. So I think it's it's yeah really important for at this particular moment, as you said, where we're defining we're seeing uh, the uh, New Caledonians defining their future and France wanting very much to 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 tailor a future uh, within France. Uh, it will be very significant, I think.
1: Uh, Denise, I do want to ask, though, because President Macron plans to revise the French constitution, right, early 2024, to change the electoral rolls there in New Caledonia. Is this a positive or negative move?
5: Uh, well, um, I think under French law, he, he needs to change. It's this. The, the NMIA Accord now, which is the agreement that has operated up till now, has come to its end. So clearly there has to be some step forward, and under French law, and New Caledonia is French still, as we know, uh, Then does need to be a step forward, especially a constitutional step. Because let's not forget that the French have been extremely innovative and successful in accommodating uh, some of these independence demands in the last 30 years. They've been extremely responsive and many autonomies have been handed over to New Caledonia. So what needs to be, there needs to be a formal replacement of that by something else. Uh, the difficulty that I see is his objective of doing this by early 2024. It's, just, it's a very early timeframe, uh, especially when, as we see, there are so many divisions within within New Caledonian political society. Uh, that 's going to be very hard to achieve. Um, his interior minister has indicated that if if the locals can 't agree then fr- by the end of the year, then France will just decide for them. But I think this would be a path that the French would not not want to take. I think there 's a lot of pressure to uh, that they 're exerting to get people around the around the table and to genuinely talk about the future. Um, but I think having an uh, an artificial deadline of early next year would be would be very difficult to achieve given these political realities that we've just been talking about.
1: Mm. Well look we will keep our eyes and ears on uh, the developments there but Denise we do want to say thank you very much for your time this morning.
5: It's a pleasure Agnes. No
1: worries. Again Denise Fisher former senior Australian diplomat uh, diplomat here on Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia the U.S. Pacific Leaders Forum Summit hosted by President Joe Biden has come to a close in Washington, D.C. At the meeting, Pacific leaders reaffirmed their commitment to relations with the U.S. and areas of shared interests like climate change, economic growth, sustainable development, public health and countering illegal fishing. But it's what's been happening away from the talks that's been generating headlines and by one leader who did not attend this year's talks.
2: How this meeting is arranged is you go and sit down. They give you three minutes for talk, talk, and then you go and listen, listen to they lecture you, lecture you about how good they are.
1: That's Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare speaking in Honiara after he arrived home from the UN General Assembly, in New York. Here's more of what he had to say about the Washington DC talks.
4: And they promised us eight hundred billion dollars or something. Or something or they promised eight
3: hundred billion dollars or something like that last year. Nothing has come through until today. Another thing about this meeting is a lot of prime ministers didn't attend. They sent their deputies or foreign ministers or foreign foreign secretaries. It's a big difference from how other countries treat us. Australia's Anthony Albanese gave us one hour for bilateral talks. When I went to Korea, the president of Korea gave me one hour to talk to him. In China, Xi Jinping gave me one hour. He treated
1: us as leaders.
4: He didn't put us in a classroom and lecture us. Not for
2: going to a classroom in Taiwan, even lecture, you
1: And that was Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasi Songovari. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for a new sports show on ABC Radio Australia, fresh off the field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the
5: international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh off the field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Welcome back. Yes, it is that time where we head around the region to find what is the latest, and we've got our news rep here with producer Carl Evans. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning to you, Aggie.
0: I am am well.
1: (laughs) That's good. I'm glad. Uh, Let's get straight into it. Vanuatu here is being advised to store water in preparation uh, for the impacts of El Nino. Is that right?
0: That's right. Vanuatu's meteorological department has warned its people to expect drier conditions in the coming months uh, as an El Nino event grips the country. So it's said below normal rainfall is expected for Vanuatu and uh, and that can lead to water shortages and food shortages so the bomb is very much urging people to make the most of the final days of wet season to store water uh, especially farmers who will be very reliant on that water for, uh, for crops.
1: Hmm. Uh, well, when can people expect the effects of El Nino to start taking place?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. So uh, as you know, the islands run from north to south, so it, uh, it would be quite normal for the southern islands to uh, to face the impacts of El, ni- El Nino first. That could be felt uh, as early as the next few months. While it might take up to a year before the ni- the northern islands feel the, the full effects. Um, the last El Nino event in Vanuatu was in 2015. That at the time caused extreme drought uh, and food shortages, uh, and many, communities complained about their crops failing to yield sufficient food at the time. So, they're very much trying to get ahead of the, ahead of the ball this time around just to make sure people are prepared and uh, and know what to do. They're not the only country doing it either. Tonga, meanwhile, as well, has uh, is telling people to expect warmer warmer oceans and, and more cyclones, and uh, and have, have released their own set of lists for people to uh to, to keep yeah. in in check of as well.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for the update on that, though. Uh, the U.S. government will pay Guam fifty million dollars in cost to clean up a toxic landfill. Uh, gosh, that was left by the U.S. Navy.
0: That's right. Yeah, it's an interesting on this one. So uh, the US federal government on Monday finally agreed to pay uh, the $49 million to close that toxic dump, uh, which has plagued the island for decades. So this is reported by the Guam Daily Post, uh, who said this money partially resolves a dispute uh, between Guam and the US federal government that dates back to 2017. Uh, It's a 23 acre dump that opened prior to World War II by the military, uh, who then passed it on to Guam's local government. uh, About 50 odd years ago however it's been the thought of a uh, thorn in the side of Guam uh, ever since uh, it's cost the government 69 million dollars just to close the dump uh, already um, and long term monitoring, and monitoring and maintenance of that site uh, is expected to cost a further thirty one million dollars uh, going forward. So this money that the federal the federal government has coughed up it does represent uh, its its fair share in a lot of ways. Given it was the military who opened it uh, and and palmed it off <laughs> later on in the first place. Of course, but uh, is Guam actually happy with the settlement? Yeah. So uh, Governor Leon Guerrero uh, called it a significant victory uh, for for her island. Uh, she said there's still concerns in regards to the future costs and how that's going uh, to come about, but uh, the settlement for now will, will definitely enable them to move forward.
1: It's interesting because we did have a story about Guam at the beginning of the show, right? So dumping ground? Now it's a firing range ground. Like, everything (laughs) seems to be happening in Guam at the moment. So, yeah, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that one. Finally, uh, travelling to the Cook Islands (laughs) for the Pacific Islands Forum uh, might be about to get easier for Pacific people. How so?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the Cook Islands are hoping to arrange direct flights from Nandi with Fiji Airways to streamline travel uh, for the attendees. So this is reported by the Cook Islands News, uh, who quoted PM Mark Brown recently. He said discussions are progressing, and in the next couple of days... It would be confirmed. He also said that given the high cost of travel uh, in the region after COVID-19, uh, other Pacific delegations, especially from the Northern Pacific, can really take advantage uh, of these charter flights. Um, as you would know, Aggie, uh, usually many Pacific Islanders have to transit through uh, Auckland in New Zealand just in order to travel to the Cook Islands. So this will very much uh, reduce some of that travel time and uh, and help everyone get to what's going to be a very important event.
1: Uh, all these airlines <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't end up like everyone wants to <laughs> Goodness But thank you again uh, Producer Carl Evans For bringing our news wrap for today Here on Pacific Beat Thank you, Aggie Now we head to climate change Which is one of the most important Public health threats uh, that is the, That the world is facing Its impact on the environment Human health Societal living is clear But one area we're still learning about Is the effect on children's health Dame Tawila Percival Is consultant, pediatrician at Kids First Children's Hospital in New Zealand.
6: So when you look at the big health concerns with climate change, like heat, um, uh, heat stress, difficulty with water, difficulty with food, I mean, children are really vulnerable to those just because of their physiology and their anatomy and that they're developing human beings. So I think that the critical thing with climate change in children is they are more vulnerable than adults. We need to factor that into our planning, um, making sure that we don't forget that when we're planning strategies.
1: Part of the research that you would have done, and I suppose in any of your findings, you would have then had to have maybe spoken to some children to to hear what they would have said. What was the word from from some of the children?
6: What um, I have been involved in is developing adaptation plan for health services in different countries And I guess my experience with children who've been in the middle of climate change and extreme events is in a clinical setting where I've spoken to them and seen them. And certainly what we see with children, if we look, for example, at disasters and extreme events like cyclones and storms and flooding is that children are quite traumatised by that and they're traumatised and fearful about what it will do to them and to their family. One of the things they're most frightened of is the effect on their family, like being separated or losing family members. So there's a lot of emotional trauma that children uh, suffer as a result of climate stressors and disasters. But I guess the physical and the health concerns of climate change are around the risk of increased diseases such as malaria or infectious diseases Well, a big worry in the Pacific is the effect on access to fresh water and also the the change in the way that we can feed our families. So, you know, soil has changed, the ability to grow food, what's available growing on trees has changed. So there's a concern with food security in children.
1: Can I ask, were any of these issues already a big problem on, say, the, the mental health of children even before COVID?
6: Yes, yes. And, you know, as long ago as the big earthquake in Haiti or the 2009 tsunami in Samoa, we have seen children in the stressful and emotional difficulties they have following um, disasters and, and ways they can cope too and ways that communities can support them. So, yes, it's something that which is well recognised well before COVID. So
1: then post-COVID, what are the actual biggest factors of climate change that children are actually having to deal with right now?
6: I mean, here in New Zealand, we've had some extreme weather events and the, the it, it's really around the emotional trauma and fear that children experience and seeing um, what's going on around them, seeing stuff in the media. And then physically, they've had to deal with things like damage to homes and um, damage to school and being displaced from their school and things being different and having to take time to recover and seeing the stress that their their family are under. So that's ever-present, every time there's an extreme weather event.
1: We look to the Pacific, and I know you alluded to this a little bit, uh, things like rising sea levels. (laughs) So then what happens when climate change impacts the quality of food or even access again to safe and clean water?
6: Well, you have to find a way to adapt. You know, for example, in Tuvalu, the the soil has been damaged by inundation. The water lens is damaged, so people have to collect rainwater. They have to have distillation of water. Um, they've had to adapt their food behaviour. So, a lot of food's imported now because they don't have breadfruit trees. They don't have mango trees. The only thing that grows is coconuts and swamp taro. So, you have to adapt the way you you know you cope with the changes you're seeing, and it's a particular concern for the, the low-lying countries, you know, like Kiribati and Tuvalu and Tokelau and Marshall Island, where the, where the sea level rise and inundation is, is the worst.
1: Yeah, and you often, again, from a health perspective, how can or what can people, countries, governments do to better mitigate climate
6: change then? Well, you know, I think the, the big countries around the world, the developed countries like Australia, New Zealand, the U.S. European countries they need to send resource and money to the countries in the front line of climate change like the Pacific so there should be money and resources that come from the developed countries to assist our island nations to adapt and cope with climate change. Um, I mean there's a lot that can be done, you know, seawalls different types of food to be grown so there's lots that can be done but our island countries need support and I think that it's up to the developed countries who are the ones that are Making most of the greenhouse gases.
1: Dame Fuller, if we don't act now, what are we facing then?
6: We are fearful that global warming will continue at the, at the current rate and we're going to continue to see increasing sea level rises and warming of our oceans and heat events and we will end up with some of our beautiful island nations uninhabitable in the future and we will be looking at having to manage migrations of some of our countries. So, I mean, for us, in the Pacific, who are on the front line of that, that's what we are facing. I think for the rest of the world, they have similar problems, but they're not going to lose their countries like we are facing. It's a real worry, and the world needs to work together to reduce our greenhouse gases so we, we slow the warming of our, of our planet.
1: And yes, you've spoken about climate change adaptation and disaster plans. What then is your recommendations for us to understand the needs of children and even our young adults
6: the the main point I'd make is that whatever we do, make sure that children are in the front of our thinking because they are very vulnerable. You know, they're more likely to die in disasters than adults. They're more likely to suffer very bad health effects from heat stress than adults. So just not to forget children should be up the front of whatever our planning is. And then going forward, I mean, each of us needs to think about what we do as individuals, as families, as communities to look after our planet and reduce our greenhouse gases and try to slow our global warming. And then as families too, we need to have disaster plans so that we are ready. Should an extreme weather event come or a big fire or something, we're ready to take care of our families. So my advice is all families should be prepared we will have to stand up and do something quickly. Absolutely. I do have to
1: ask, though, as sometimes this may seem very negative at looking at mm. what climate change can do, but do you see any positives, though?
6: I, mean, I do in terms of adaptation. I think if you go to somewhere like Tuvalu, and and they're hugely at risk and stress, but they're doing incredible things with reclamation of land, with sea walls, with changing the plants that they're growing to be able to feed their community. So you see some incredible innovation with, with what communities are doing. So we're not all just standing around saying, oh, this is terrible, what can I do? People are getting up and doing stuff that's really positive to see.
1: And that was Dame Te Wiela percival consultant pediatrician at Kids First Children's Hospital in New Zealand. Let's go back to the US Pacific Leaders Summit. There was a touching moment during the talks when President Joe Biden shared a personal story about his family's connection to Papua New Guinea. It was prompted by a gift from PNG Prime Minister James Marape. Here's what President Biden had to say.
4: I want to thank the Prime Minister... Uh for his incredible gift, a small piece of an A-20 aircraft that, uh, during World War II, my, uh, my mother's uh, number two brother, Ambrose Finnegan, uh, number three brother, I should say, my uncle was in the Army Air Corps, and he flew many missions in that A-20 across the Pacific. And in 1944, during one of those missions, his plane crashed off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And like so many, Soldiers who served freedom's cause during that time, my uncle's remains were never recovered, never found. But his sacrifice was always remembered, including when General MacArthur, who sent my family a condolence letter, wrote, and I quote, he died serving in a crusade from which a better world for all will come. A better world for all will come. My friends, that's why our nations come together here today. that's why they to came together in World War II and where we are today. And that's why we're going to, because I'm, our objective is to build a better world.
1: That is US President Joe Biden there. So what is the story of his uncle's time in PNG? Well, our reporter Liam Fox has been doing some digging and joins us now. Good morning, Liam. G'day, Aggie. Hey, what did you actually find out?
7: Well first i've got to get give credit to the organization pacific wrecks they're a, a private group that um uh tries to find the wrecks of uh, u.s planes and also the remains of uh, u.s servicemen who have been lost uh, overseas during world war Two. they provided the post courier newspaper in png with a, a really comprehensive um, um report on uh, ambrose finnegan um and and They found out that uh, in January 1942, uh, 27-year-old Ambrose Finnegan and his 21-year-old brother John, so that's two of the uh, four uncles of Joe Biden from that side of the family, they enlisted in the U.S. Army along with a neighborhood friend. That was just uh, over a month after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the U.S. into the war. Um... Uh, All of this was covered in the local Scranton, Pennsylvania newspaper, the Tribune, uh, under a a story about uh, childhood pals, three childhood pals enlisting in the Army. Uh, Two days after they enlisted, they began training. In October that year, they were sent to the Pacific. Ambrose was sent as a uh, second lieutenant in the U.S. Fifth Air Force, and he was a courier in New Guinea. And uh, as for the fatal flight that took place in May 1944, he was a passenger on board an A-20 bomber, as President Biden referred to. It was nicknamed Barry's Baby, and it flew from the Momate Airfield uh, from Los Negros, which is part of what we now, now know as uh, Manus Island, uh, headed for Nadzab Airport, which is near Ley on the north coast of PNG. The weather was reported to be good at The time, but 40 minutes into the flight, the pilot attempted to ditch into the sea, but the engines failed, and it hit the water hard. Of the four on board, only uh, one survived. Unfortunately for Joe Biden's family, it wasn't Uncle Ambrose. That single survivor was rescued by a barge. The next day, a search was launched, but they couldn't find any sign of the men or the aircraft, and so they were officially declared dead. And listed as missing in action, and that's a, a situation that remains to this day. Those men and so many others are listed as missing in action. Um, there was no real mention uh, of the cause of the crash, uh, but it was deemed non combat. And uh, as the as the story of the the men enlisting in the the army was told in the local newspaper there in Scranton, so was the uh, their deaths reported in a in a simple story titled, Four Regional Men Dead, Five Missing, Five Wounded. And and as we heard President Biden mention in his uh, speech to the US Pacific Summit, uh, his family received that letter from General Douglas MacArthur, uh, telling uh, his family uh, that Ambrose had died, but also saying that he served in a crusade from which a better world will come. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've covered so many World War II stories in my time covering the Pacific, um, from memorials to, you know, 75th anniversary commemorations. And i got to say, reading these reports and just the way they were covered in the local newspapers, how common it must have been. How many thousands, hundreds of thousands of families must have got a letter like that in the US, Mm. America, uh, Australia, Britain? It, it just, it, it struck me as so commonplace. Yeah.
1: Wow. Fascinating story. Uh, I believe, though, is Mr. Biden, he's, he's not the only U.S. president with a personal connection, though, to the Pacific, stemming from World War II.
7: No, that's right. A lot of our listeners would be aware that uh, John F. Kennedy, JFK, Uh, Also served in the war. He was in Solomon Islands. Uh, He was in charge of a patrol torpedo boat, a PT boat. Uh, They were struck by uh, a Japanese destroyer. And uh, what then happened was an incredible tale of survival and island hopping for over a week as he and his men moved from island to island to try to get close to, to comrades to get rescued. They were eventually found by two locals who carried a message on a a scratched message on a coconut uh, back to their their colleagues. They then organized a boat to uh, rescue them. Um, and uh, it was a story that was picked up by the New Yorker magazine. And um, it, it sort of added to uh, JFK's aura and, and followed him into leadership. So there's definitely a strong wartime bond between the US and the Pacific. And you can see that uh, President Biden there was looking to draw on that as mm. they try to strengthen those relationships <laughs> uh, in the face of Chinese competition, yeah.
1: Uh, Liam, look, you sound like a bit of a military historian. I'm curious, do you have a favourite war movie?
7: <laughs> a favourite war movie, jeez. Um, yeah, but it's not um, It's not World War Two. I think one of the, my favourite and the moving ones was that, oh, I'm trying to remember it now, I think it's called Glory, about the first all-black... Yes. Um, um, unit in the American Civil War with uh, Denzel Washington and someone else. Uh, I cried. I cried. Um, But so many great war movies out there. Yeah.
1: Uh, Liam, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really great insight into these. And I'm sure these are just going to forge stronger relationships between the U.S. and the Pacific. But uh, again, thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. No worries. That is ABC reporter Liam Fox.
2: Kick off your Sunday with Sosafina for Morley on Pacific Sundays, right here on ABC Radio Australia. Pacific Sundays is a laid-back weekly wrap of all things Pacific, from news, sport and entertainment to the best island music vibes. So whether you're chilling out, heading off to church or catching up with family, be entertained as you do it with Pacific Sundays. Every Sunday at 6am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. You don't call yourself a comedian. Why is that? Yeah,
2: I just wanted to show everyone that I'm just being myself. If I make you laugh, that's just me. I'm just I'm just making you laugh from being me. Tune
3: in to Sisters Let's Talk Thursday mornings at nine AM PNG time on ABC
1: Radio Australia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Uh, tomorrow is your sports edition with Richard Eword, That's at 6am PNG time. But you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though. News is next. Coming up after that is Nisha Daily. And Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Again, I'm Aggie Bow, and this is Pacific Beat.